In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Today, in our Advent preparation, we once again meet John the Baptist. That guy who dresses funny and has a strange diet. Who is this guy who is unique among preachers. In fact, I can't say I've ever met any Christian as peculiar as John the Baptist. And when it comes to his preaching, he's rather unconventional. And unconventional preachers tend to find themselves in trouble. I doubt many of us would stand to hear his preaching to us today. His words are pointed, stern, harsh, unbending, and they seem to be lacking in patience. He's not interested in tolerance and respectability and getting along. If you were at seminary today, he'd probably get kicked out for being not winsome enough. And I suspect that if he made it through seminary and got to his first call, it wouldn't take too long before the congregation decided to run him out. Now, it is true that he is popular, though. People want to hear him. But I think most people go to check him out less as a, as a preacher and more as a kind of spectacle. He's, he's entertaining. And, and what does a crowd want more than, than to be entertained? John speaks his mind, and he doesn't hold back. He doesn't care about the results. He is obsessed. He's focused entirely and only on one single thing. He doesn't say that one thing is the most important thing among the many important things of life. But John preaches that only one thing matters. And John is right. Now it's true, I think, that some thought this obsessive preacher was something of a spectacle. But he's attracted other attention, too. He's doing preacher-type things. And the current preachers of Israel, known as the Pharisees, they have not authorized this preaching. So they'll send out their HR reps, the priests and Levites, to investigate this theological aberration. For many years, the Jews had lived under Roman oppression. They were looking for a savior, a man who would crush the Romans and deliver God's people. But if anyone led that kind of rebellion, the Roman army would crush them. The people would suffer and most importantly to the Pharisees, the religious elites would pay the price. So the investigative committee comes in a spirit of political self-preservation. They ask John to identify himself. It's kind of a simple question. You've all been asked that same question many times. What's your name? Who's calling? 
Who said that you could do that? Not really hard to answer. But John is asked, who are you? And he gives a strange answer. He says, I am not the Christ. Now, I know, at least for myself, and it's probably true for all of you as well, that you have never answered the question to identify yourself in this way. And I can say with a pretty good degree of confidence that if if you get pulled over, the proper answer to the officer is not, I am not the Christ. And this really isn't how we think about things. Now, I'm sure if, if any of us were asked, are you the Christ, that we'd all be quick to say no. But it's not the first thing we think about ourselves. For John, it is. The most important thing that John wants you to know about him is that he is not the Christ. Again, it's, it's a strange answer, but it's actually the, the first part of a faithful confession, that he makes this clear distinction between himself and the Christ, between the person John and the person Jesus. And as the conversation goes on, John explains both what he is and what he is not. And so John's confession has both a confession of the truth and a rejection of what is false. So John confesses Jesus. Confessing Jesus, though, doesn't necessarily mean that you give your personal testimony not about confessing your feelings about Jesus, but it's in particular about confessing God's truth. Confessing Christ means saying what the Bible says about him. It also means not being ashamed of what God has said in the scriptures and speaking and confessing these things boldly. And John does this better than any preacher other than Christ himself. Yes, John is a great preacher, so great, in fact, that his hearers could mistake him for the Christ. That's why John's preaching is so clearly about Christ and not himself. But then to outsiders, his focus on Jesus seems kind of myopic. That John knows that only one thing matters, and and that's Jesus. For John, if he hears a question that has any significance whatsoever, then he understands it to be a question about Jesus. To John, if it's not a question about Jesus, then it's not really a significant question. No matter what John is doing, he is pointing to the Christ. He knows the answer to the Sunday school question is always Jesus. And you might have seen John depicted in Christian art, his unnaturally long, bony index finger pointing right at Jesus. Now, this kind of preaching was troubling to the Pharisees. 
They wanted to go out and hear John preach more prophecies about the coming Messiah. And they were especially interested in a political Messiah who would rescue them from the Romans. So they expect to hear prophecies from John. John looks like a prophet. He dresses like one. He lives like one. He sounds like one in his preaching, the way he speaks fearlessly. But he doesn't do miracles. He doesn't write down his words. And he'll even say that he is not Elijah. And this kind of gets confusing because we heard last week that Jesus said that John is a prophet, and in particular, he is Elijah. But instead, think of this in terms of the office and the spirit of Elijah. So we can say that John is a real Elijah in the same way that we'd say a traitor is a real Judas. This was what was said of John from the beginning. Gabriel said to John's father, Your son shall go before the face of the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to walk in the wisdom of the just. Old Testament prophets were also at times called seers. Given revelation by God, they saw into the future, and then they preached about these coming future kings. But John is kind of less of a seer and and more, more like a crier. He's clearing the way before the king. And so John does not deal in prophecies. There are no more prophecies to be made about the Messiah's first coming. For the Messiah has now come among you in his flesh. It's as if John is saying, step aside, make room. Your king will be passing this way in just a few moments. Prepare yourself to greet him. Behold your king. But the Pharisees, as we said, are bothered by this preaching. They want John to proclaim a Messiah who comes far in the future, not one who stands among them today. They want that unknown Messiah that's coming. They're not ready to meet him today, nor do they really want to. Because as long as the Messiah remains far away, they don't have to be ready for his coming. The Pharisees are displeased with John's answers. And John calls them to repent. We hear elsewhere how he names their sin and demands their repentance. His response to them even has a bit of biting sarcasm. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But they do not think they need warnings about the Messiah. They are the religious elite, the important ones, the ones with power. And you, John, should really know that you shouldn't talk to people in power like that. 
At least not if you want to keep your head. So when John gets locked up, the Pharisees will be silent. When his head becomes a dinner party decoration, they will say nothing. Because secretly, they are pleased. And they know that the one who follows John will be next. They despise both the forerunner and his Lord because they don't have the Lord in their hearts. They do not desire his ways. And they do not wish to have their hearts prepared for his salvation and his coming. They would prefer to listen to preaching that just leaves them alone. Well, speaking of leaving things alone, it's been said that there are two subjects that one ought to avoid in polite discourse, religion and and politics. But religion is talk about God, and politics is talk about how people live together in life. So in a way, it's kind of just a, a subset of religion, But if we shouldn't argue about religion, what should we argue about? If we look in the Bible, we'll find 66 books full of God arguing about religion. So let's perhaps do away with this command of secular piety. The other commandment of social niceness is Don't be too dogmatic. But this commandment exists because so many love their own opinions more than they love God's word. For if we believe God's word, then we should act according to the faith that he gives there and confess his word clearly and without compromise. That's how John preached. He spoke truth. He refuted error, and it didn't matter whose error it was, John would stand on God's word alone. So when Herod stole his brother's wife, John doesn't stay quiet. He knew silence in the face of sin would be understood as approval. More than that, John spoke for God. So an approval by John would be an endorsement in God's name. You know that when John spoke out, he was beheaded for his trouble. But he really didn't have to lose his head. Even after he was arrested, if John would have offered to bless Herod and his union, I think he probably would have escaped execution. But John was martyred for his preaching. Usually we think of Christian martyrs as being killed for confessing Christ. And many will say that offering a blessing to those engaged in public sin might be a matter of the law and not a matter of the gospel. Or at the very least that calling out sin is a matter of the law and not the gospel. But John the Baptist understood what we often forget, 
To confess what Christ says in the law is to confess Christ. And this John will do. He will confess Christ, both in the law and in the gospel, no matter the cost, and even to death. Thus, John is martyred for his confession. And today, this morning in our service, we will witness a martyr's vow. We usually think of that martyr's vow and the rite of confirmation as being willing to stand up for Christ in the face of death. And it is that. But it's also all the the lesser consequences that may come of our confession. For we say it is a willingness to suffer all even death. And so most of you who have been confirmed probably won't have to, con- have to confess Christ under threat of having your head removed. But you might lose lesser things because of your confession. You might lose friends or be shunned by relatives and loved ones. You might suffer being called names or missing out on opportunities. Confessing Christ might mean saying no to things that are otherwise good. You might lose out on relationships or creature comforts. You might have to say no to a job because you can't find a faithful Lutheran church nearby. And in a way, I think all of these lesser things can be more difficult to say no to than standing in the face of death and saying no and, and, and confessing Christ. That these things continue, they're, they're ongoing. But Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is the only Savior that we poor sinners have. He is our only hope. So that means that we stand on the confidence of Christ's word about everything that God says. We say all that the scriptures say, and we don't need to apologize for what God says. God is strong. He can defend himself if he wants to. Christians confess Christ because he is our greatest treasure. And in fact, we don't even get the option of confessing or not. That's why St. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And this confession is what our dear sister in Christ, Sophia, endeavors to undertake today. She makes the vow that expresses her desire to remain faithful to this confession and church, even unto death. She joins you in your confession of Christ. And so we pray.
for God the Holy Spirit to help her and to help all of us to confess the Christian faith clearly and courageously. So here then, the preaching of John the Baptist, which leads you to a faithful confession. The truth about your sin is that you kind of like to rename them. You give them softer, maybe nicer sounding names. Instead of swearing falsely, you might say that you spoke carelessly. Instead of overeating, or instead of gluttony, well, I, I overate. Stealing, well, that was, that was kind of an error in judgment. And lies are only little and white. Or you talk about being broken, imperfect, deceived, flawed, only human. You want to soften the law's accusation. The law accuses rightly. Your problem is not a, a lapse of judgment or forgetting to think before you, st- you speak or strike back. Your problem runs deeper. It's sin. It means that you have committed the wrong. It's your fault. You have harmed others with your words and actions. You have been lacking in love, rich in hate. Even worse, what you have done is not only against your neighbor, but an offense against the righteous and holy God. He can justly condemn you for it. And trying to make your, your sins get smaller doesn't make them go away. Now it's good for us to confess these, to confess real sins, because that's what Jesus, the Lamb of God, carries away. John knows the way out. He is the voice crying out in the wilderness, and you live in the wilderness. Broken families, forgotten vocations, workplace warfare, family struggles, marital strife, rebellious children, frustrated parents. But there is hope. There is another man, a man who is in himself purity and holiness and righteousness. He doesn't sin. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat or steal. He fulfills his Father's will. He baptizes to cleanse, to strengthen, to restore. The terms of his forgiveness don't involve a payment plan or making interest payments. For he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's maybe a little easy to miss in our English, but there's a present tense here. The Lamb of God who takes away, is taking away. Even now, he takes away your sin from you. Now, like John the Baptist, 
Your pastor is not a prophet, but a proclaimer, a voice. He preaches the imminent arrival of the Messiah. For Jesus is not some far-off Savior coming to visit us in the future. He is near, very near, proclaimed to you in his holy word, poured upon you in holy baptism, present upon this altar in his body and blood. And so your pastor preaches not only with his words, but with his hand, you might say with his fingers, putting God's name upon you in the waters of baptism, placing Jesus' body into your body, pouring Jesus' blood into your mouth, raising his hands in blessing. In all this, you are being pointed and shown the way to Jesus, to the salvation that you need. There's an ancient communion service rubric, those instructions given for the conduct of the service, that says that after the elements have been consecrated and the pastor is holding them up for all to see, the pastor then declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the congregation sings their amen and and says, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Our liturgy delivers what John promised. Jesus is actually here. And so at his coming, we repent We pray, we fall down and worship him at his altar, and we eat and drink according to his institution. All the most significant questions are answered here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This sermon is one you cannot hear too many times. For this little sermon prepares your heart to face death. Behold, look, this is urgent. It's as urgent today as it was then for the people hearing John's voice. Behold, look, Christ is here in your midst. Pay attention to him. Turn your attention from whatever you were looking at before. Whatever might be occupying your mind. Something more important demands your attention. This is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Eat this lamb, drink his blood. Your sins are carried away and you are safe. In the holy name of Jesus. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord.